0: Thank you again, Stan, worship team for leading us in those songs of praise, focusing on, especially on uh, one of the key major themes of the book of James, uh, this, uh, on the nature of, of faith. And uh, especially, uh, not only do I appreciate the theme of the songs, but I appreciate even uh, kind of learning a new song today. And I, I don't think I ever sung that song, Pierce My Ear. and I thought, wow, the first time I think I've ever sung in the church uh, about piercing my ear. Uh, you know, I thought, wow, that's different. But I see the biblical truth there in that song, and that's, a, that's encouraging. Uh, I love it even that we can go back to songs from the 80s, and they're still just as, you know, uh, especially if they're biblical truths, uh, they minister to our hearts. They express uh, just the, 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 uh, the, the right response to the, uh, this wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That's great. Appreciate that. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of James this morning. As we begin our series studying the book of James, we just completed our Church 101 series and I wanted to uh, turn our attention to another book. Normally we try to go through books of the Bible, study them kind of uh, verse by verse or section by section to give us the context for for the scriptures so we might uh, have the whole counsel of God. We've sort of been alternating between Old Testament and New Testament. We just completed a We had completed a series on Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, so I wanted to go to the New Testament. And if you remember the last time in the New Testament, we studied the book of 1 Timothy, one of the Pauline epistles. And so I thought, uh, as we go to the New Testament again this this time, we thought we'd uh, take a look at one of the general epistles, one of the general epistles. And um, James seems to be an appropriate book, especially uh, as it kind of encourages us uh, in the area of our faith. And this morning's message is a little more of a lesson versus a a traditional sermon, but a lesson that will help us to understand uh, sort of the introductory matters of the book of James that would inspire us to study this book a little bit uh, more than maybe we have in the past. James chapter 1, verse 1, I was just, actually I told him, I gave a bonus lesson to our first service, I should tell you too. Um. Sometimes, you know, James is one of those books that maybe you don't know where to find it in the Bible. Kind of if you're new Christian, you know, you don't know where the books of the Bible are, and you don't use a phone or an iPad to kind of just boop, boop, boop and find the book. Uh, for your Bibles, I always, think of, I always think of this phrase, tomato plants have juice. You know, so write that down, take notes. Um, but it helps me to find where James is because I think of T-P-H-J, right? And I think of more many of us, when you go to the New Testament, you can find all the T-books, you know they're all near, they're all right one after five after the other first Thessalonians second Thessalonians first Timothy second Timothy Titus so you find the Ts you can find James pretty easily because you know T's P for Philemon it's a short one you might skip it but then Hebrews is the next one that's a long book so you can't miss that one James follows right after that so you kind of figure out where James is I know you're gonna be flipping through a lot this uh, next few or four months or so uh, remember that phrase tomato plants have juice or oh, no, that's free that's free. Okay. Let's read then. Let's hear the word of God. The first verse of our book that we'll be studying this, uh, this semester, or this semester, this, these next four months. <laughs> James chapter one, verse one. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this letter from James, a letter that not only spoke to those original recipients of this letter, but it speaks to us today. We thank you, Father, for the theme of faith that we'll examine in these next months ahead. And Lord, may you cause us, as we study this, path, this book, to look at our own faith. Lord, that our faith would not be in name only, but that our faith would be in deed as well. That our faith would be that, would be not characterized by hearing only, but by doing as well. And Father, we pray that as we obey your word, as we heed your instructions in this book of James, may we rejoice. May we uh, find reason to give you thanks and praise because we see that the faith that you give is a faith that works, is a faith that is transforming us, causing us to be renewed. It's a faith that gives us hope that the promises that you have given to us and your word that your son has promised to us in the Gospels are true because we see that our faith, this faith that you give, makes every difference in our lives. It transforms how we live and we live for your glory. Lord, we pray and ask that your spirit would guide us now. May you speak your word to us. Give us an understanding of this book and cause us to Desire to study it on our own, even to read it during our weeks, and, our, uh, and that we would grow in a love for the instructions that we find in your Word. In this letter from James, we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. You know, as a, just as an introduction illustration, you may have noticed that. Uh, I've gone through a sort of a transformation over the last five years. Uh, yes, I've i gotten, you know, more handsome. I understand that. <laughs> no, but okay, maybe not. But you've perhaps noticed, right? It's quite visible. It's every week. It's right before you. You've seen the change. I've become an Apple user, right? <laughs> I've converted. Now, many of you know, when I first came to the church, I was a hardcore PC user. And by the way, I'm trying, not trying to be divisive here. Okay, this is an illustration. So don't, you know, fanboys, beware. Now, the fact is, I, I use PCs a lot. Uh, I use Windows, I mean, Windows uh, notebooks, and I had all sorts of, you know, all the different types of the the Toshibas, the Dells, and, and whatnot. But after a while, I you know, when you use Windows machines, you know what happens, right? After about a year, you know what happens. It starts getting sluggish, you know, and then, uh-oh. Um, so... Then eventually it starts locking up on you, freezing. And then, you know, of course, you get the B-S-O-D, right? Blue screen of death, right? You understand that? <laughs> and I and I, was, I got so frustrated getting my blue screens of death, uh, at least with my particular laptops. Maybe I haven't used a PC for about four or five years now. So uh, maybe they've changed. Maybe they've gotten better with, especially Windows 10's coming out. It's going to be, I hear it's free. Wow, great. The fact is, I would switched to a Mac because... Someone gave me, first of all, someone gave me a Mac. So I thought, oh, I'll use it, you know. And then I realized, wow, MacBooks just work, right? That's the saying, right? Everybody says that, and it certainly it does work. It doesn't get sluggish, uh, well, not after a year at least. I've come to learn that after three years, it does get a little sluggish. Uh, It does lock up sometimes. But it's just a little longer than, you know, Windows machines. So... Don't get me wrong, I love I love PCs, I love Windows machines, I like I like how I can tinker with them. I can kinda I go in there and uh, edit files and and do all sorts of things. I'm familiar with it. But when it came, push come to shove, I just wanted when we have a notebook, we can you can tinker with can you can you know know all things about it, but most of us just want a notebook that works, right? Most of us want a PC or a laptop that will just work whenever we need it. We don't want to have to tinker with it when it's not working. now, why do I say all this? Okay, not just because I'm trying to divide the church between Windows and Mac. It's not, the, not a battle we want to fight. But the fact is, I think that's, that desire that we have to have a, a, a notebook that works is what we, oftentimes what we think about our faith, is that we want a faith that works, right? All of us here are Christians. We have a faith, a professed faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we know that that faith results in the promise of eternal life in heaven and forgiveness of sins. We understand these to be true. And these we, do, we believe take by faith in Jesus Christ according to the word of God. And it's in our head and in some sense, faith is an internal heart response. But we also want to have a faith that works. We want to have a faith that we know and have assurance that it is working that the promises that Jesus makes to us are actually true. Although although we may have a faith in Jesus Christ and we know that we're saved by faith, we know that the faith that we have must, it ought to make a difference in our lives. It ought to change in how we live. And that's what this book of James is about. The book of James teaches us about faith. It's about a the theme of faith. This, but it's a faith that works. This book describes not so much how we might become a follower of Christ, but how to live as a follower of Christ. How to be a follower of Christ, we might say. We are grateful for our faith, and a faith that leads to forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But we want a faith that works, a faith that works when we find ourselves facing trials, which James talks about. We want to have a faith that works in making us more equipped for life, that it helps us to uh, know how to respond in our relationships with one another when we find ourselves in, in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of favoritism in the midst of differences between us, socioeconomic classes. We want a faith that is more than just a name. We want a faith that actually affects our works, our deeds, our life. As we study this book over the next three months then, or four months, I think, I hope we'll be challenged. As we study this book, we be challenged to examine our faith. That our faith will be more than just, I say that I believe, and I'm trusting in Christ for salvation, but that we'll see how this faith makes a difference in our lives, that our faith influences or transforms us so that we actually, when we look at our life, we say, wow, I have a faith in Christ, and it manifests in these ways. It shows, it makes, makes my life different than it was before. And so as an outline today, it's sort of an introductory a message to the Book of James. We're studying just verse one and kind of other passages throughout. But we'll get three introductory details about James that motivate us. That will, I hope, we'll trust will motivate us to want to further study this book together. Uh, <clears throat> James is one of those books I think you kind of we most of us probably read as a new believer. It was probably after the Book of John. You kind of read James because someone told you read James because you know you, know you don't know why, but most of us that read James, oh, wow, this is a great book. It tells you how to live this Christian life. And But it's been, I think, as we grow in our Christian faith, we sort of move away from James. We forget the, the practical, the blessings of James. And so uh, we're going to go back to James, and I hope that it will be just kind of a refresh, refreshing uh, truth in our minds as we study these books. So let's look at these three details today. So three introductory details. Uh, again, uh, not a A formal exposition of the text, but I trust introductory matters for us that will be interesting, at least, and encouraging to us to study this book. So let's take a look. Number one, we're going to look at, as we look at this text, the authorship of James. Who wrote this letter that is entitled James? Now, when we look at verse 1, it tells us that James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, this letter is attributed to James. Now, that makes sense. Uh, So it tells us that, well, the author is James, but when you know your New Testament, if you study the New Testament, you kind of read and look through all for all the James in the New Testament, there are actually five Jameses referred to in the New Testament. Which of those James? It could be four, but five different occasions, that uh, different James. First of all, I think the most familiar James uh, that the New Testament talks about is James, the brother of John, right? The sons of Zebedee. James and John uh, were one of the uh, early disciples or apostles of Jesus Christ. It could have been him, perhaps, that wrote this letter. He, uh, in fact, when I first read this book, and you asked me who wrote James, I would have thought it was James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of John. The second James that could have wrote this letter, or the second James in the New Testament talks about, it, is James, the son of Alphaeus. In, among Jesus' 12 apostles, there were actually two James, James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, he's referred to as one of the 12 in Matthew 10 verse 3 now it's possible that it was him uh, but we don't know too much about him besides that he was one of the 12 a third james that's referred to is one that's called james the less he uh, he has his mother was with mary magdalene at the empty tomb and that's that's all we know of him uh, some people think that james the less is equivalent is equated with james the son of alphaeus that he's just the lesser known of the jameses the of the 12 apostles but he could be a totally different James. But we also know very little about That's why he's probably is called James the Less. Fourthly, there's another James. called, and he's, and he's even more obscure. He's the father of Judas. Now, Jesus had 12 apostles, as you know. He, there were two apostles that were named Judas. One was the familiar one, Judas Iscariot. And the other was Judas, the son of James. So... Um, James, that's the reference to, and that's the, this fourth James. Now, it's probably unlikely that a father of one of the 12 disciples is writing this letter to all the, um, to, uh, so, because he's so obscure. But there's a fifth James that's mentioned in the New Testament, and most scholars would agree that this James is the author of this letter, and that is James, the brother of Jesus. James here, i Uh, Jesus had four brothers. That is, Joseph and Mary, after the birth of Jesus, had other sons and had daughters. And they had four sons, at least as far as we know. And of the oldest of those four sons was James. James, the son of Joseph. James, the brother of Jesus. Now, when James identifies himself here as who he is, he he doesn't say, James, the brother of Jesus. That's kind of significant for us because if you were related to somebody famous, and you're going to write a letter. If you're going to write a letter to Christians, wouldn't you want to say, "Hey, I'm James, the brother of Jesus," so that's why you should listen to me, right? It's like if I said I was the brother of our president, yeah, you probably should listen to me too because I got some kind of clout. I can, you know, talk to my president brother if that was the case. That would be some power. But James significantly, and probably as an indication of his humility. But there's a theological signal here too. He identifies himself as a bondservant, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word bondservant has just appreciated the, just the biblical truths that were explained in our worship. I love it when our worship leaders kind of take time to explain songs explain truths to us. I get so encouraged. It makes me want to sing those songs a little bit louder with a, a little more excitement and zeal. But it, a bondservant is a slave. And we kind of know about slaves. Slaves were common in those days. A slave was one who basically had no rights of their own. Their own, they had no no freedom to do what they wished, their will. But they basically their rights, their will was submit was in submission to their master, whoever their master or lord would be. That their master would determine what they would do. The master would determine how they should live their life, and they answered to their master. James identifies himself. As a slave, a bondservant. Notice though that he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Significantly, in the original languages, the order of the words of this, in this phrase placed the emphasis not on so much that he's a bondservant, a slave, but emphasizes on who he's a bondservant of. Literally, it would be James of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a bondservant. He emphasized that as, his, as a slave, he belongs, he serves, he answers to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Significantly, too, here, notice that since he doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus, he identifies himself as the bondservant, the slave of Lord Jesus. How many of you go around saying, I'm the servant of your, my brother or sister? None of us, generally, we say, no, man, I, you know, as your siblings, you want to be the master, right? Especially if you're the older sibling. You want to say, hey, you listen to me. But G- James here doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm the uh, brother of James. He talks about, I belong, I serve Jesus Christ. Now, now he, anyways, Jesus, but significantly, he says, he acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah, He knows that his brother, is. he doesn't see his brother as just his brother. He sees Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Not only is he the Christ, but he's his Lord. And not only is he his Lord, but then if you look at the connection here, he identifies, equates the Lord Jesus Christ with God. He's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes where his authority comes from. James' authority doesn't come from who he's related to. It doesn't come from family connections. We understand sometimes how bad that goes in our world. If you kind of know somebody, you know, you're related to somebody, that gives you some authority. But James doesn't see it that way. He's, he may be related to Jesus, but he says, that's not where my authority comes from. His authority comes from whom he serves, whom he's a slave of, who he belongs to, who he answers to. And this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. And for this very reason, as he writes this letter, he's, writing, he's introducing his authority. That his authority comes from whom he serves. He serves God, he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. So, therefore, when he writes these words, it's not James's word, but it's God's words. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's words. And encourages us and should move us to make sure that we listen. But further background on James, uh, on the person of James. Gives, will give us a greater appreciation uh, for this letter. Now, I've already mentioned that James was the oldest of Jesus's four brothers. Uh, he was, of course, younger than Jesus, Jesus being the first. But James was not always a believer in Christ. He did not, even though he knew Jesus throughout his life, during Jesus' earthly ministry, James did not follow Christ. According to Mark chapter 3, verse 21, James and his brothers actually thought that Jesus was out of his mind, that he was out of, lost his senses, in a sense. They thought he was crazy. They heard that he had been gathering disciples to himself in Galilee, and that basically he was sitting, you know, though he he was putting himself as a a teacher of the law. And so they thought, man, our brothers lost it we need to go and intervene. You know, an intervention was necessary. They were actually going to go grab him and take him back and kind of talk some sense into him. They didn't believe who he was. In fact, John chapter 7, verse 5 tells directly that James and his brothers were not believing in Jesus. Now, after Jesus died and rose from the grave, it was at that time that he appeared to James for the very first time, according to James, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7. There he tells it, the resurrected Jesus appeared to James. It's sort of like how Jesus appeared to Paul, the apostle Paul, or Saul, on the road to Damascus. You know, Saul wasn't a believer, but as soon as he saw the resurrected Christ, what happened? He believed in Christ. He came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we, we believe that that's, or scholars believe too, that that is probably likely when James came to saving faith, when he actually saw His brother, who was crucified nailed to the cross, risen from the dead, appeared to him. And probably at that time, he became a believer in Christ. And when we look in Acts, Acts chapter 1, by the time of the early church, James, I think verse 14, James was among those that were meeting in the upper room, devoting themselves to prayer along with the apostles as well as their mother, uh, James's mother, Mary. But James would not remain just one of the brothers. But as we understand we look into the rest of the New Testament, James would eventually become the leader of this early church in Jerusalem. We think about the leader of the church who spoke the most among the apostles. It was Peter. But eventually it transitioned from Peter representing the apostles to James. In fact, some scholars say that James became not only the leader of not just the Jerusalem church, but the whole early church. That when he spoke, he spoke on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ, even. The testimony of Paul in Galatians, as well as Luke and Acts, would even seem to point to this. Let's just take a look at a couple of these passages that convey for us the significance of James. Like when we think of the, Paul, uh, the early church and leaders, we think of maybe Peter. We might think of John. We would think of Paul as an apostle. We don't tend to think of James. But James was the leader of that early church. That if anybody said, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the majority of people would have said, James. Paul writes, in fact, in Galatians, Galatians is one of the earliest of the New Testament books, Galatians 1.19, he refers actually to James as an apostle. Now, not one of the 12 apostles, not in that sense where he was selected by Jesus and where he actually spent time following Jesus during his ministry, but an apostle in the sense of like a Paul. Paul, who was basically particularly set aside to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, kind of not among the outside of the twelve, sent to be a messenger, a representative of Christ, and that's why James would kind of have that prominent role within this early church. Later in Galatians chapter two verse nine, James is called one of the pillars of the early church. In fact, when Paul talks about who is the the pillar, the foundation of the church, who is it? It's James. It's James. And actually, significant in Galatians chapter two verse nine is that Paul lists three pillars. He lists Peter. We all know Peter. He lists John. We all know he's the beloved disciple. But he also lists James, not one of the 12, but James, the leader of the early church. And furthermore, if you look at that text, Galatians 2 and 9, who's listed first? James. James, even in Paul's mind, was the leader of the early church. Even among the pillars of the church, he was the lead guy. Now, Luke would confirm these, the significance of James in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. When Peter uh, was put into prison, when he was in prison, and then he escaped by the, the assistance of an angel, he went and found, he went to John Mark's house. And then there, where they were having a prayer meeting, and there he approached, uh, the, and, and uh, they, were, uh, they were praying for Peter. But Peter, what does he say? This, this significance goes, it seems to be an indication that this is where a transition from Peter's prominence to James's prominence in the local church, in that Jerusalem church. That he tells them to give a report to whom? Not John, not any of the twelve other 12 apostles, but to James. Tell, give a report to James and the brethren. James is become, is becoming now the leader, more prominent leader within the Jerusalem church. In Acts 15, by the time Acts 15 kind of this is, Uh, when at the Jerusalem Council, the Jerusalem Council was significant because Gentiles were coming into the church. And when the Jewish believers thought that, hey, uh, we thought this this was a Jewish thing. Why are Gentiles now coming into the church? Is that right? Is that some kind of blasphemous thing? Because we thought Gentiles were unclean. How come Gentiles are coming? So they had a big meeting, a big discussion in the Jerusalem church. And you notice in Acts, when we read Acts 15, verse 13 to 21, who was leading the Jerusalem Council? James is. James is leading that discussion. It's not, and by the way, some are saying, well, could that be James, the brother of John? It's not James, the brother, because by Acts chapter 8, uh, James, the brother of John, is actually martyred to death. So he's off the scene pretty early in the early church. And furthermore, just one final thing, Acts 21, 18. Uh, we see this pattern, even Paul, the, we think of them, when we look at the New Testament, we think of Paul because he wrote, the majority of the Pauline epistles. We think he's got the promise in church. He, and I think as Gentiles, we think of Paul as being pretty significant. But even Paul uh, submits himself to the leader of, leadership of James. Uh, there are many, several times, and this would be one of the times, where Paul would answer in, in, to seek out James's counsel. And Paul meets with James here even after his third missionary journey in Acts 21, 18. And then he follows his instructions, in fact, to, uh, to, um, uh, that James gives there in that passage. The leader of the church in Jerusalem was not Peter, was not John, was not Paul, but it was James. Here is the leader of the church in Jerusalem right? He is not only known by all the Jerusalem church, 3,000 plus people, but he's known also by all the Jews who, got sa- who were saved in the Pentecost and then went to their various regions. They understood that he was the undisputed face of the church, the leader, the first among equals, you might say, among the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Here was the brother of Jesus writing this letter. And he's, but yet, when he writes his letter, when he says, James, he describes who he is, introduces who he is, he doesn't say, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the brother of Jesus. I think in our days, we would, that would have given us some clout. we said, whoa, let's listen to him. But he says instead, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn a principle here about James' understanding of his authority. That his authority doesn't come from who he's related to nor does it come from what position he has in the church. But again, it is his authority comes from whom he serves. Neither position nor family relationship give him authority. His authority comes from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He serves and speaks on behalf of God and Christ. And therefore, we ought to listen. I would even apply this. I just think about a lot of times myself as a leader of the church. When I speak from here, I hope you don't listen to me just because I have the title pastor in front of me. You know, I have this office of an elder. You should respect your, obey your leaders, and God's. That is true. But I hope that you understand that our authority doesn't come just purely from having an office, just purely from having a title. Nor does it come because I know somebody, you know, maybe I know some well-known pastors. Maybe I know, you know, the the father-in-law of our other pastors. So that gives me clout, you know. I, I respect him. He's a good, godly pastor. But the fact is, any authority from anyone who stands here in this pulpit and preaches the word of God to you comes because he is a servant of God And the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes because, therefore, and a servant of God, Lord Jesus Christ, will bring out, serve in a sense, God's word to you. That's where the authority comes from. And that's where James is emphasized here. Listen to what I'm about to say to you as he writes to these recipients of this letter. Because I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we listen. That's why we need this book. Secondly, let's move on. Another, kinda, another um, uh, <clears throat> detail of this book that we study is the recipients of this letter of James. Who does James write his letter to that also inspires us, encourages us to want to study this book? James writes in verse, latter half verse 1, he writes it to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And he gives this word, greetings. The Twelve Tribes is simply a very common New Testament desc- reference to the Israelites, or b- biblical reference, not just New Testament, but Old Testament as well, to Jewish people, the nation of Israel. What's more, the word dispersed, which is the Greek word diaspora, refers to those Israelites who are living outside of the land of Israel. God had promised a land to Israel, a, very, a physical land, and that is where the nation of Israel lives. The nation of Israel lives in the land of Israel. But there were Israelites, there were Jews who lived outside this promised land for various reasons. And these are called the diaspora, the dispersed ones. James is writing, though he's, he's writing as the leader in the church of Jerusalem, but he's writing to these, these believers, these others, these Israel, Jewish people who are living outside of Jerusalem. There were two primary events in the history of Israel that led to their dispersion. One was the Babylonian captivity that we looked at in Ezra and Nehemiah, in 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered them, and then took some of them to slavery into the east. And there was some return under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra. A good number of Israelites remained in Babylon, in Persia, in Assyria, in Susa, and other uh, capitals, other uh, nations and, and cities in the east. There's a second major dispersion. And that took place in 63 BC. This was when Rome conquered Jerusalem. A Roman conquered Jerusalem uh, another later on in 70 AD, or at least it would destroy the temple in 70 AD as well. But in 63 BC, the Romans conquered Jerusalem. And they then too also took some captives into slavery, but this time in the West. So by the time of Jesus, you can imagine, there were Jews that were living not only in the East, but also in the West. Not only slaves, but then some Jews, as they were business people, they would have made, traveled, and they would have, as free men, they would have lived in other places as well. That on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, Luke tells us of how many Jews came to saving faith in Jesus Christ through Peter's sermon. And, but notice, they weren't all from Jerusalem. They weren't all from Israel. They were from Parthia and Media and Elam and Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. The districts of Libya, about Cyrene, Rome, Crete, and Arabia. The Jewish people lived all across. They were dispersed abroad through various uh, circumstances. But these, James was not just writing just purely to Jewish people. James was writing to Jewish believers. Notice in James chapter 2 1, he talks about your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James is writing to those who are believers in Christ, those who have a faith in Jesus the Messiah. It's significant, then, as we think about this letter. James writes this letter to Jewish believers, Jewish believers outside of Israel. In the letter, there is no mention of Gentile Christians at all. He doesn't refer to Gentiles. You know, when Paul writes, about, writes letters, he often will refer to the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. He referred to this mystery, right, that was hidden in ages past but has now been revealed that Gentiles too are involved in the church are, are part of the church, and that was so mind blowing to Jewish people. We got to get that. It's like you know, they thought that God was their God, right? He chose Abraham, He chose <laughs> Jacob, and and uh, uh, to and his, his descendants to be His holy nation. They thought that salvation was for them, and rightly so, salvation was for them. But God would use the Israelites. What they didn't understand was that God would use his rights and the salvation that he gave for them, that he would also extend that salvation for all mankind, including Gentiles. And so that was such a huge conflict. That's why we talk about Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. There's no mention of Gentile Christians. There's no mention of the Jerusalem council. And that's very helpful for us to kind of identify the date of this letter. The, ver- the fact that he doesn't refer to these, those events or even Gentile Christians at this time tells us that James was probably writing at a time when the majority of believers were Jewish. Now, when we think of Jewish believers, we think of the Messianic Jews. We know that there's always a remnant that God maintains. But in this period of time, there was not too many, very little, probably Paul's, Paul's first missionary journey probably hadn't even started yet. It could have, maybe he was on that journey. But the fair, so it tells us that this was most likely written before 48 A.D., or 48 A.D. a little before. Why do we say that? Because 49 A.D. was Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. And such an important discussion, if you had written, if you go there and, by the way, just for fun, those of you the Bible scholars out there, you want to study Acts, the letter of Acts 15, compare that with this, the introduction of this letter, and you'll see the very common, the common writing, because they're both written by James. This is actually the second letter of James. The first one's found in Acts, an early letter. If you know your, kind of the dates of your Bible books, James is then ver- therefore very likely the very first New Testament book ever written. The very first. You know, we look at the, we open the New Testament, we find Matthew there. So we think Matthew was first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Neither of those, were, none of those gospels were first. They were written a little bit later. Sometimes... The only other earlier book would be Galatians. Galatians actually talks about uh, some of the, the Jew-Gentile controversy. So the fact is, this book that doesn't refer to it is even earlier. And in fact, as a confer- as what's kind of interesting, if you kind of study a little church history or the biblical canon, we'd learn if we, we looked at the Eastern Orthodox churches. You know, we kind of come from a flow, what's called the Western churches, Western uh, tradition of churches. But there's a whole set of Eastern Orthodox churches, Eastern churches. And if you kind of opened up an Eastern Orthodox Bible, especially the older ones, you would find that after Acts comes these letters, not Paul's letters, these general epistles, but the very first book after Acts is James. It's James because they understood that James had the significance. It was probably because it was the first of the letters that were written to the church, James has that significance, and then it's the first thing. Can you imagine the first ever New Testament writing? is found right here. It gives us insight. When we read this letter, we kind of realize, wow, this is early, the very early form of New Testament teaching. It's found right here in this letter that we read. It's so practical. It shows what faith in Jesus Christ looks like for these Jewish believers. Kind of just another note as we go through this letter. As we say this, we'll also notice there's a lack of any personal references. James doesn't give greetings to, hey, please greet so-and-so, please greet so-and-so. Not like Paul does in some of his letters. So it tells us that this is probably what's called an encyclical letter, and that it was written to the diaspora, that is, to Jewish believers that are spread throughout the, the Roman Empire. Then it's likely that he had sent either multiple letters to different places, or he could have sent a few here and there, and that they were meant to be passed from church to church. Kind of like how Ephesians is often seen as an encyclical letter. So how is this significant for us? You know, when we kind of study the Bible, we kind of look at, well, who was this written to? It was written to Jewish believers. And You look at that and you say, well, since this letter was written to Jewish believers, then therefore, since I'm not Jewish, it doesn't apply to me, right? Because it's written to Jewish believers. It's for Jewish believers, right? That's, that's what we might someone might think. But how does this book that James writes, written to Jewish believers, how can it apply to us? How does it speak to us? Does it speak to us? Should we rightly interpret it as being applicable to us? Well, you know, you say, well, it's in our Bible, so therefore it is applicable. And yes, that's true. That's a good way to see it, and that's pretty safe. But let me make a, in in case you come across a liberal who says it doesn't apply to you, or someone who's uh, overly literal, and says, no, since you're not Jewish, it's not for you. This book applies to us, first and foremost, because at that time, there were only Jewish believers. And what is really important is that James is writing To believers. He's writing to those who have a faith in Jesus Christ. And so, as those who have faith in Christ, this word then also applies to us. Even though James addresses Jewish believers, he addresses matters that are relevant to all believers of all times. Because no matter what your ethnic background may be, your problems and my problems are always the same as every other person, as every other human being. We all share the same struggle with sin. We all share our struggles and wrestlings with temptation. All of us in life endure and go through trials. And this book speaks to those matters. It speaks to how we may handle various kinds of trials. It speaks to how we may handle temptation. It speaks to us of how when we hear the word, we shouldn't be just hearers, but we ought to be doers as well. It speaks to those of us who are given to partiality because someone may be wealthy or feel we think is more important than others. It speaks to us because we are people that have conflicts with one another and we need to understand why. It speaks to us, those of us who are sick and we don't understand why we're sick and how we, we might resolve our sickness and how we might call our elders to pray for us. It shows to us just as it showed to the Jerusalem these Jewish believers that when we have faith in Jesus Christ, it ought to make a difference in our life. It ought to work. And does your faith work? Is your faith working? You know, we gotta ask ourselves that. Because if your faith's not working, working rightly in accordance with the scriptures, then that should make a red flag for you. It's just say, well there's something wrong with my faith then. Now, it's not that Jesus has it fall short, but perhaps there's something that you misunderstand about faith. Maybe you've come to the wrong understanding what saving faith actually is. Maybe you've kind of like Jewish, many Jewish people, faith was just simply cultural. I grew up in the church. That's why I'm a Christian. Maybe you thought that it was just purely, purely believing, just saying I believe in Jesus Christ and just simply saying that, yes, he died on the cross for my sins that that is enough, that that's what saving faith is, but it isn't. Saving faith is transforming. Saving faith is not just something that we, as a decision that we make, a a recognition of of the knowledge of a will, of a sense that we, that a trust that we make at, at the, at the point of salvation, but faith is believing throughout our lives. It continually does so in our lives. And to the Day we see the Lord Jesus Christ, and this faith that began at the moment of our initial salvation also works throughout our life. It transforms us, changes us, and so this is why even when it's, James is writing to Jerusalem believers to teach them about faith that works, we have a very same faith, and James wants us to make sure that we have a faith that works too. Does our faith work? Let's move then to a last, our last detail about the letter of James, and that's simply the key theme of James. And this will kind of summarize for us what is the main theme, what are the key themes of this letter that we'll study and sort of guiding will guide us as we study the rest of this letter. The key theme of James is this: that faith in Jesus Christ manifests in the actions of one's daily life. Faith in Jesus Christ manifests in the actions of one's daily life—that's a mouthful. I know we could shorten a little bit and say that true faith works in transforming how you live. That so true faith affects how we live. It changes how we live our lives. That we don't keep living our life like before we knew Christ, but it changes how we live. Or just simply, in short, as often we we tend to memorize that James is about the theme of faith works that our faith in Jesus Christ works. It manifests and works in our lives. That It works out in what we do and how we behave and our attitudes and our actions. This theme of the letter of James is confirmed as we study this book together. It will, I trust it will be confirmed for you as you study this book together. Now, when I invite you, especially as we start a book, just read this book. It's only five chapters, real short, less than, less than 2,000 words. So you could read it in one setting probably within 15 minutes or so. If I would encourage you, read through this book at least three times. Read three times through in the next few weeks. Sit down, read it. And as you read this book, you'll notice that there are going to be repeated words. There's going to be phrases, things that will stand out to you. And I think that, and hopefully they will confirm for us what the theme is. The most obvious repeated word within this book of James that you're going to find is this word Brethren. We could translate it as brothers. That's the same idea. It's the masculine plural form of the word brother. James uses this term brethren 15 times in this letter. He will he'll call them my brethren eight times, my beloved brethren three times, and simply brethren four times. Now, this word simply, its literal meaning, means refers to the siblings of one's family. Now, when I say a brother... I have a brother or brethren, you might think, well, you mean all your brothers? Yeah, that's true. That's one way that this word can be used. But it also refers to all your siblings, that when this masculine plural form of brother is used, it could refer to your brothers and your sisters, all your siblings together. And we'll see that kind of fleshed out even in Jesus' usage of this word. So, but this word would not only have a physical brother, physical siblings reference, but it came to then figuratively refer to, metaphorically refer to, are brothers and sisters in the family of God. That as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have brothers and sisters, that we're a family of God. And that we, ha- as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are brethren. And That's why James, when he first to him, calls them brethren. He's talking about these who are a family, part of the family of God. He's not just saying that, just because that's what they are, that he calls them brethren. He's not just saying it because it kind of softens and sometimes... I like this term because it reminds me that we're family. You know, if you ever receive an email from me, uh, so particularly if you're one of the leaders, and I will sometimes begin with, dear brethren, you know, it's because I have something difficult to say. So if you ever get an email like that, you know it's something serious. Because <laughs> I like to remind you, us, uh, because the reason why I'm writing to us, or you, or, is because I, you're my brother or sister in the Lord. And I want, and it's because you're part of my family that I, sometimes I have to say hard things or sometimes I say things that I, you know, we might disagree about. And I, I, I kind of expect that. I kind of write it in that sense to kind of soften it. And James writes some things that are hard. He says, hey, don't just be hearers of the word. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? It's by just hearing and believing. But he says, be doers too. That's a hard saying. He's going to say, hey, don't show favoritism. I see how you treat the rich, how you ignore the poor ooh, you know, that's, that's a hurtful saying, but that's a hard saying that he's going to say. James has a lot of hard sayings, a lot of challenges to, to the people of God, these Jewish believers, and he, the use of brethren kind of just sort of, in a sense, may prepare people for the hard words. It's sort of saying, like, I love you before you discipline your child, you know? I love you, child. Spank. Or, you know, or, <laughs> or I love you. Stand in the corner, I mean. Stand in the corner. Stand in the corner. But I don't think James uses in those, particularly with those in mind. I think James here, when he uses this term, and James, by the way, does have zero quotes. He has zero direct quotes from the Gospels, which is kind of significant, being an earlier because the Gospels weren't written. But James knew Jesus for much of Jesus' life, right? And so James, when he writes this letter, says, writes many things that are very, sound, so close to what Jesus said, which would be understandable. And this is one of those terms. This is one of those terms that for James, when he he uses this word brethren, he knows there's an event that probably is in the back of his mind where he realized the significance of this term brethren. It's not just just simply a metaphor. It's not just simply um, to soften his words. But he's thinking of what Jesus said about brethren. You remember back, we talked about Mark chapter 3 already. Early in Jesus' ministry, that his own family thought he had lost his senses. So James and his brothers and Mary were going to take him home. And when James and his brothers and Mary, they all arrived at the house where Jesus was teaching, he was inside the house, he was teaching his disciples. And then Jesus was told that, hey, outside, your mothers and your, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you. Right? Remember that story? What does Jesus say? He says something quite shocking, actually. When I read it the first time, I thought, whoa, that sounds kind of disrespectful. But Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Right? For Jesus, is rhetorical. But if, I, you know, you said that to your mom or your siblings, you'd probably get, you know, disciplined for that. It sounds disrespectful. But Jesus was using it in a rhetorical manner. He says, who are my mother and brothers? He gives the answer in Mark chapter 3, verse 34 to 35. Behold my mother and my brothers. He looked around. Jesus, you can see, just is looking at those who he taught in his room, those who are listening to his words, and he says, these are my mother and my brothers. Not in a physical sense, but figuratively, metaphorically speaking. These are my family. Why? For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that's why we get this term, my brothers. That's the word for brethren. And so notice in later on, Jesus includes the sisters as well, all his siblings, all his family. He reserves the father, by the way, for his only heavenly father. But notice that Jesus equates and defines for us what brethren means, that the brethren are those who deal the will of God. Brothers are those who obey God's will, obey Jesus' commands. Jesus defined the word brethren. Now, of course, Jesus was not speaking of a work salvation here in in Mark chapter 3. He's not saying that if you do the will of God, then you become my brothers, you become part of the family. He's saying that if you do the will of God, it reveals, it shows that you are a believer in God, that you have a faith in Christ, and therefore you are part of my family. It's indicative of salvation. And so James, in referring to the recipients as brothers, brethren, reminds them of the words of Jesus then, that when he calls them brethren, he calls them to do God's will. And you will notice, in fact, throughout this book, each time that, Jesus, that James uses the word brethren, shortly after, there's going to be an instruction to do God's will. Just look at it, Look for it. You'll see it. There's a second common word that's repeated throughout the book that confirms for us this whole idea of faith that works, and that's simply the word faith. The word faith appears 16 times within this book, mostly in chapter 2, but in there in chapter 2, the key verse is verse 17. At least I think it's a key verse. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And when we get to that passage, we'll talk about how this kind of matches up with what Paul would write elsewhere about how salvation by faith and not of works. But yet here, James talks about faith. Faith must have works. Otherwise, it's dead. The faith alone is inadequate. It's useless by itself. But faith must have works. If it doesn't have works, then that faith is really a dead faith. It's not a living faith. It's not a working faith. And as we study this letter, we'll be challenged to examine our own faith, I trust. I know I've been kind of challenged looking at my own faith and seeing how much I fall short in in, 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 these, in the many respective ways of where my faith fleshes out in my day-to-day life, that we would examine our lives and that we would, by the grace of God, live out in obedience the will of God and the instructions of Christ. And that it might hopefully will encourage you too to see that your faith is a working faith, a living faith. There's a third kind of observation that we'll make in this text in the whole book, as, that will confirm just that faith needs to work, or faith will work, is the prevalence of what we call imperative commands. The, the impaired, basically the commands that that uh, James gives. In fact, fifty-five times in this letter, James gives a command. Those of us that look, you know, a lot of times we just like you know, to find what are the commands. You know, what what do I need to do? Some of us are just like, just tell me what to do. You know, don't even need to explain to me why I need to do it. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to do that. Some of us are like that. And if you like that kind of stuff, especially you like practical stuff, how to live your life, James is that. It makes this book so practical because there's all sorts of commands, all sorts of instructions for how our faith works and fleshes out in our life. More than any other New Testament book, more than the Gospels, more than uh, Pauline Epistles, more than Reve- the book of Revelation, James, percentage-wise, to the number of words in each book, James has more, greater percentage of commands in this book than any, all the other New Testament books. In fact, 3% of the words in this letter are are commands. Every 100 words is a command, essentially. This book is, uh, tells you not so much how, why, but how to live. Every chapter, every verse uh, of this book as we read it, it's, it's, it will stand out to us or it kind of, it's memorable to us because it's so full of commands and we tend to memorize commands. Chapter 1 verse 9, I'll give you just examples of some of these memorable commands that the word of God gives us. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How many, many of us are familiar with that? Chapter 2 verse 1, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Chapter 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers. And I know I've heard that many times, my brethren. For chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And chapter 5, verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Something we all easily do. So you yourselves may not be judged. All these commands, and these are just five of the 55 in this book. There's 50 other commands we're going to look at. We're all very practical, all yet as well as memorable for us. Many of us have memorized, we'll probably memorize some or more of these commands. And they remind us, all taken together, that the faith that we have is a faith that will work, is a faith that will do the will of God. Because brethren, that's what you are called to be, doers of the will of God, not just hearers of the will of God. as we conclude then, I hope we've given you just enough encouragement to want to study this book more. Because it's written by James, the, the leader of the early church. But he's a servant of God and of Christ. And therefore, we ought to hear. It's written to us not only, uh, but it's written to believers, the early church. It was the first word to those early believers. And therefore, something that we want to hear. We want to make sure that we as believers in Christ would also uh, obey and follow and then because we want to have a faith that works. Martin Luther is probably best known for helping the church to reclaim that salvation is by faith alone. Sola fide. But Martin Luther, writing about faith, writes these words that I believe convey the idea of James. Martin Luther writes... Faith is a living, busy, active, powerful thing. It is impossible for it not to do us good continually. It never asks whether good works are to be done, but has done them before there is time to ask the question, and it is always doing them. May our faith, may your faith, be a living, busy, active, powerful thing in your life. May you be about not just, only hearing, but doing good continually. Just like your faith is a continual faith, but continual believing. So it's also a continually doing, working in your life, transforming, changing our lives. Not just for the sake of being busy, but for the sake of manifesting Christ in us. Manifesting the gospel of Christ. That our lives reflect that who we are. That we are servants of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ and that are, we are brethren. We are those who belong to the family of God who do the will of our Savior and Lord. May we be blessed. May you, if any out there who do not yet know Jesus Christ, may you come before you even start trying to l- obey these instructions, may you come to know that faith is essential to begin with, that we are saved by faith it's by faith in Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And then by turning from sins and turning in faith to him, you can have forgiveness and eternal life. But how do you know that promise is real? Because that faith that you have will manifest in your life. It will change you. And next week we are going to be in about the number one place that it changes you is in those trials that we face throughout our life. And all of us got trials. And I looked around the room, and I, I see some of you who are going through some very difficult trials. All of us, you live long enough, you go through all sorts of trials. But I think we've come to, as believers in Jesus Christ, when we have faith, that faith affects how we respond to trials. It changes us. It transforms, it empowers, and strengthens us. And that's going to encourage you, because when you see, realize that this faith works in the midst of trials... It gives us confidence to know that our faith is genuine and real. The promises of God are fulfilled. And that we can count on the fact that one day we will see Christ in heaven. We'll be with him after we die. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a faith that you give us. We know that it is faith and salvation and repentance is all a gift of you. It's not our work alone at all. It's not even any part of ours though so we are responsible to believe. But yet we thank you, Father, that when you give us this faith, that it's not just merely a head faith, a heart faith, but it's a faith that also transforms and manifests in our lives. We thank you for this book of James, even these introductory thoughts. And Lord, I pray that even as we've studied in a, in a, a somewhat of a, a, a kind of a study setting, I pray that it would speak to our hearts, Lord. May you cause us to eagerly desire to read, uh, to read and seek the truths of your book so that we would examine our own faith, that you would spur our faith on. Perhaps among us here, we have some faith who have a faith that are merely hearers and not yet doers. Some of us may have a, a faith that shows favoritism and does not treat one another equally. Some of us have a faith that results in not peace, but conflict. Oh, Lord, some of us have a faith that is purely just cultural, and not a genuine faith that is, comes through repentance of sin and faith in Christ's death and resurrection. Lord, may you, through your word, this, these next few months in this series, cause us to have a, a, real, a genuine faith in Christ, and a faith in Christ that we will see, that will manifest in changing our lives. And Lord, we know that this will be a work that you are doing in us, and we pray, Father, for this. We ask that you would, take, would transform us through your word, Sanctify us, Father. Make us more and more like Christ, that one day we may be complete in Christ. But until then, Lord, you equip us to be a a church that reflects Christ so we would effectively make disciples of Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.